of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, gracious Father, uh, thank you this morning. We thank you for the gathering of your people. We thank you for uh, what a joy that is that we can meet together in the name of Christ, uh, that we can come and, and receive your word and sit under it and, uh, and be shaped by it. Uh, Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see uh, your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and that as we behold the glory of Jesus, uh, Lord, that you would work in each of our hearts, in each of our minds, uh, to transform us from one degree of glory to another. So God, would you do a great work among us today? We ask as we come to your word, please help us as we study it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, friends, will you please be seated? And uh, as you sit, uh, keep your bulletins open to that uh, short reading there from Colossians 1. Or if you have a, a, a Bible with you uh, or a device of some sort, and you want to open up and have all of Colossians 1 in front of you. Uh, that is where we are going to be here today. Uh, there's an old recipe for rabbit stew, which uh, begins with this very specific instruction. First, catch the rabbit. Without the rabbit, there is no dish. Uh, we might say something similar when it comes to Christianity. Uh, if you're going to talk about Christianity, uh, indeed, if you're going to be a Christian, then you must begin with the Christ of Christianity. There is no Christianity without Christ. And so, before anything else, a person must get a hold of Christ. You must uh, catch Christ, if you will, and understand who he truly is. So, who is Jesus Christ? Well, let's imagine that you're uh, throwing a dinner party one weekend, and among the guests that you've invited to your party uh, are your uh, Muslim friend uh, who lives next door to you, uh, the Jehovah's Witness lady that uh, you recently met at the subway station who was handing out literature, uh, your old buddy from college who's now a self-described theological liberal, uh, and then a couple of other neighbors that you don't know all that well yet, but you do know that one of them is a Mormon and the other is a Buddhist. Now, if in the course of dinner you decide to insert into the conversation this question, who is Jesus Christ? Well, you get quite a few different answers. Uh, your Muslim friend might say something like, uh, Jesus was an extraordinary person, no doubt, born of a virgin, worked miracles, he was a wise teacher, but he certainly, certainly didn't die on a cross or, or rise again. And though he was a prophet of God, and an important prophet at that, uh, he's certainly not the most important prophet. Now, that honor belongs to Muhammad. Uh, your Jehovah's Witness guest, who you recently befriended, might then chime in and respectfully disagree and claim that Jesus, before he came into this world, was actually the archangel Michael, and that he's therefore a created being, the very first created being of God's creating work, but a created being nonetheless, uh, to which your Mormon neighbor might gently protest and say that actually Jesus was the firstborn child of Elohim. He's the product of the physical union between the Father God and the Virgin Mary. In other words, he's the firstborn of many spirit children made by heavenly parents. To which then your old buddy, now self-described as a theological liberal, 
would have become increasingly frustrated as he tries to understand how it is that any enlightened person can still believe any of these old myths here in the technological world of the 21st century. Uh, to which your Buddhist neighbor, trying to bring some peace and calm to the conversation, which has grown admittedly a little bit tense, then chimes in and simply says, can't we all just say that Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher and leave it at that? Well, it's your dinner party. And so now it's your turn to answer the question. What do you say? Who is Jesus Christ? Now, friends, there's no more important question than that question. Now, there's no more important answer that we could give to a question than that answer. Because for Christianity, Jesus isn't just the beginning, but he's also the end, and he is everything in between. We must get a hold of Jesus. And indeed, it's this which is the primary concern of Paul's letter to the Colossians. In the first 14 verses that we've looked at over a couple of weeks now, Paul has been praying. He's been giving thanks for the good work that God has been doing through the proclamation of the gospel and the lives of these believers in Colossae. Uh, we've noted that there were, there were probably some false teachers in Colossae who were teaching a uh, Jesus plus kind of message. Uh, in other words, the false teachers were saying things like, uh, Jesus is all well and good, uh, but he's ultimately not enough for you in your life. You, you, you need more than Jesus. Uh, you need religion. Uh, you need mystical experiences. You, you need angels. Uh, to which Paul, up to this point, has been uh, indirectly pushing back against that kind of Jesus plus message. And thus Paul has been emphasizing that in Christ is all the fullness we need. Christ is our focus. We are in Christ. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ because in Christ we have everything we need. And friends, it's that which you must keep in mind as we come to these few verses here today. Because if you want to understand what Colossians is all about... You could very rightly say that Colossians is all about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is utterly sufficient for all of our needs. Uh, Jesus is everything. He, he's an absolutely sufficient Savior. We don't need anything else other than Jesus. Right? Over and over again in this letter, that's the point that's going to be emphasized. Now, what makes our passage today so critical to all of this is that it demonstrates the reason why Jesus is such a sufficient Savior. And the reason is because he is absolutely supreme. The sufficiency of Jesus is grounded in the supremacy of Jesus. That's what these few verses here are all about. They're about the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus over everything. And it's because Jesus has that kind of supremacy and preeminence that he is, therefore, an entirely sufficient Savior. Again, the sufficiency of Jesus is grounded in the supremacy of Jesus. So friends, if we're going to correctly answer that question, who is Jesus Christ? Uh, the, these verses, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, are essential to that answer. And therefore, listen, my, my main job here this morning as I see it is nothing more than to show you Jesus Christ. Uh, that's my job, to show you the glory of Jesus Christ here today. The Bible here in this passage, it makes seven, seven different statements about who Jesus is. So let's look at each one of them, and let's pray that the Lord will open our eyes to see his glory. First, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you see that there at the beginning of verse 15? He is the image of the invisible God. The he there in verse 15 is Jesus. 
Uh, because these verses, of course, are connected to what just come, came before them. In fact, verses 9 to 20 are actually all one sentence in the original language. And the focus is on Jesus. And so immediately before our passage today, uh, we read that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. So the context is one in which Jesus, the beloved Son of God, is spoken of as being the sufficient Savior through whom we're redeemed and forgiven of our sins. And again, the reason he is such a sufficient Savior is because he is the image of the invisible God. Now, you and I and every human being that have been created, we've been created in the image of God. Uh, that's the language of Genesis. God made men and women in his image, in the image of God. He created them. But you see, the point of verse 15 here isn't that Jesus has simply been created in the image of God, but rather he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, the, the point of God's word here is that Jesus is God himself. The, the invisible God is made visible in Jesus. That's the point. Do you remember that uh, great moment in John's gospel? It's John chapter 14 and uh, Jesus is with his disciples, and he, he ends up giving them a remarkable teaching on the Trinity, uh, the teaching that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are, are all different persons, and yet they're all one. They're, they're one God. And so Jesus says to them, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? In other words, I am the image of the invisible God. I am God in the flesh. I am God made manifest to you so that you can see and know what God is like. In fact, as we'll reflect on more next week, just a, a few verses later down in Colossians 1.19, Paul declares that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so friends, it really is true that if you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. Uh, if you want to see what God is like in his love and his compassion, you look to Jesus. If you want to see what God is like in his anger towards sin, you look to Jesus. Now, you can look to creation and the natural world, and you can see something amazing about God's wisdom and power and everything that's been created. But the only way to get a personal and intimate view of God is to look to Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God made visible. He's not just another prophet like Abraham or Moses. And he's not just an enlightened teacher. He is God. Second, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That's how verse 15 continues. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if we go back to that hypothetical dinner party that you're throwing, and when the Jehovah's Witness there around the, your table begins to speak of Jesus as being the first created being, this actually would be one of the verses in the Bible that she almost certainly would turn to. Because that's how a Jehovah's Witness reads this verse. Uh, don't you see, they say, 
I mean, very clearly it says that Jesus is the firstborn. He's a created being. Well, as always, when you're reading the Bible and studying it, context is of the utmost importance. Uh, So as we'll see in just a moment, verse 16 declares that all things have been created by who? By Christ. And so this language of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, it doesn't seem like it could mean that Jesus is the very first created being because he himself, verse 16, the very next verse here, is the one who himself created everything. So that's one piece of the context that we can't overlook. But then there's also the wider piece of context that we find in the rest of the Bible, where this language of firstborn is used not necessarily to refer to time, but to title. And so, for example, Psalm 89, 27 is quite helpful here. In Psalm 89, God declares of David that I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Now, that declaration has nothing to do with David being the oldest. In fact, David was the youngest of his brothers. Uh, Rather, it's about David's supremacy and his his superiority. And namely, as the psalm says, he will be the highest of the kings of earth. He'll be the exalted and, and honored king who will rule over all the other kings. And that's the kind of metaphorical use of the word here in Colossians to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Again, it's not about a sequence in time as if Jesus is the first one to be created. It's about his title. It's about the fact that he's utterly supreme over all creation. There's nothing in creation that compares to him. He's exalted over it all. He is the preeminent one. Which, of course, he would be, right? Is the image of the invisible God. Of course he would have absolute supremacy over creation. Of course he would be the one who sovereignly reigns over it all. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Third, Who's Jesus? He's the one by whom all things were created. Or we might say that he's the author of creation. He's the origin of it all. It all comes from him. In fact, that's precisely why he's the firstborn of all creation. He has preeminence in creation because he created it all. This is what Genesis chapter 1 is referring to when it talks about God's creating work. Remember, when God creates, what does he do? He speaks. And it's his word that brings the world into existence. Well, Jesus is that creating word. This is what John chapter 1 is referring to. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus is the one who created this world? You see, you better not simply refer to him as being nothing more than a wise teacher. You better not simply say that he was a nice guy who did some good things in this world. No, he created it. This is his world. He's the author of it, all of it. It's all his. That's what verse 16 is, in fact, emphasizing. He created all of it, all things. For by him, all things were created. And in case, you might wonder if perhaps there are some exceptions to this all things. The rest of this verse is designed to say that there are no exceptions. Uh, Things in heaven, things on earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible, things that are powerful and spiritual and even ugly and painful, all things have been created by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So friends, listen, you're going to have to do some work with this verse here on your own. Uh, there's so much in here, I can't, I can't possibly do it justice. Even if we had all day to kind of talk about it, I couldn't, I couldn't do it justice with my own words. Now, you, have to, you, have to, you have to work with this verse on your own to really work it into your heart and mind and, and come to some sort of comprehensive sense of the immense truth that these, these few words are declaring to us. Jesus is the author of all things. All of them. They're all his idea. They're all his handiwork. You know, perhaps try this after church today. Maybe just go find some place on a sidewalk somewhere or, or go to the park and just, just try to take it all in and realize that Jesus created it all. You know, the sun that's, that's way up there in the heavens. Or, or think of the, the immensity of just our galaxy, much less all of space. He did that. You know, and then, and then look down at your feet and see a pebble, see a little weed growing there in between the cracks. He did that. And as you look around at all the sights that there are here in our, our overwhelming city, the cars that are everywhere, the trees that are, that are barren without any leaves right now, the people, all the people everywhere, each person with something like uh, 30 trillion cells in each human body, every intricate, detailed, complex person, he did that. And it's not just those things you can see, it's also those things you can't see. Uh, that breeze blowing, uh, the warmth of the sun on your face, uh, that gravity that, that keeps you anchored to the earth. He did that. And indeed, so comprehensive is his creating work that every spiritual reality, good and bad, is attributed to him. That's what this reference to thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities is all about. This is a typical biblical reference not just to earthly thrones and dominions and nations and kingdoms and presidents and prime ministers, though it is that, but it's also a typical reference to angels and spiritual realities, including those realities that are evil and ungodly. Let me, let me try to show you this, because I think this is vital for how we understand pain and suffering and evil in this world, and what it is that we do with it, and how it is that we make sense of it. If you have a Bible open, you can look over to chapter 2, verse 15. In chapter 2, verse 15 here of Colossians, Paul uses similar language to speak of the victory that Jesus has achieved on the cross. And he says there that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. Okay, so these rulers and authorities spoken of in chapter 1 as being created by Christ are in chapter 2 the same rulers and authorities that have now been defeated by Christ. A similar reference to rulers and authorities turns up in Ephesians as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we read, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
You see, so this language of rulers and authorities and dominions and powers, not only is that referring to, to every human authority, you know, it doesn't refer to simply Biden or Putin or any other leader. It doesn't refer to just every, every human authority, good or bad. It's also referring to every spiritual authority, good or bad. And so Colossians 1 is making the comprehensive statement that all things have been created by Christ, even emphasizing the fact that that also includes thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, the, 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 the very cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil that Jesus would one day claim victory over at the cross. Which isn't to say that Jesus is responsible for evil. And the Bible would have us understand very clearly that Jesus created all things good and that angels and men and women rebelled against him and became evil. But the massive point that Colossians 1.16 is making is that you, you, you must not think that there's some, some great battle of good versus evil. No, Jesus is preeminent. And Martin Luther made this point by saying that, that the devil is God's devil. In other words, God and the devil aren't two interlocking equal foes. God has absolute authority. Jesus is preeminent. And Jesus already has the ultimate victory over every pain and every suffering and every evil. And so all of it is under his authority. And therefore, when he created all things, he knew exactly what would happen. And so there is no great battle between two equal foes of good and evil. There is ultimately only Jesus as the preeminent Lord over it all. All things have been created by Christ. Fourth, all things have been created through Christ. I think perhaps the difference between by and through here is perhaps the difference between Jesus being the author of creation and Jesus being the agent of creation. In other words, not only did he conceive of it all and, and put together the whole plan of the world, but he's also the very one who, in his power and wisdom, has brought everything into existence. Uh, if you want maybe a, a different illustration, think of what goes into building a house. Right? You, you have an architect who draws up the blueprint and the designs, and then you have the builder who constructs the whole thing. Well, when it comes to creation, Jesus is both. He's the architect and he's the builder. And we might also say that the house is for him. That's our fifth point this morning. Fifth, all things have been created for Christ. Now again, you're going to have to do most of the work on this for your own heart and mind. I mean, I can't possibly do this justice. All things have been created by Christ, through Christ, for Christ. I mean, what more could the Bible possibly say to emphasize the preeminence of Jesus over everything? I mean, to say that everything exists for Christ. Every cloud, uh, every insect, uh, every, every ray of light, it's all for Him. It's designed for Him. He's the author, the agent, the, the aim of it all. Meaning it's all for His glory. It's all for His praise. It's all for His enjoyment. It's all to display His preeminence. 
As one writer has put it, Jesus is the reason, the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation and culmination of every molecule that moves. Isn't that amazing? Did you know that you're not the center of the universe? You're not the center. It's not about you. It's not even yours. It belongs to him. All of it. All of it is for him. And friends, this obviously includes every person. Every person in one way or another is meant for the glory of Jesus. That's one of the reasons we should love and care for every single human being. It's because they're all by him. They're all through him. They're all for him. And it's why we should be good stewards of the created world. It's for Jesus. It's his world. It's for his glory. And friends, this also includes, you see, the the thrones and the dominions, the rulers, the authorities, even all of that. All of that is for him. Which means all of the, the pain and all of the suffering and all of the evil of this world and of your life is all ultimately going to be for the praise of his glory. God is going to use that pain. He's going to use it to show the marvels of his grace and the marvels of his love and the, and the marvels of his salvation. And so, and so even as Jesus created all things good, he knew what they would become as a result of sin and all of it he has designed and built to be for the praise of his glory, displaying his preeminence over everything. Friends, believe that about the pain and suffering that you're enduring. It is not pointless. It is not meaningless. Nothing in this world is. It's all for him. And if you're in him by faith, then all of it will be for your good to his glory. Just think about the cross. Jesus created all things knowing exactly what he would face and what he would endure and the torture that he'd undergo. He created the wood. He created the materials that would be used for the nails knowing that one day it would be uh, uh, turned into the instrument of his pain and death. All of it he took into account as he planned the history of redemption and the triumphs of his grace at the cross. He's the author, he's the agent, he's the aim. It's all by him, through him, for him. And you see, the more we embrace that, the more we believe that, the more we'll then rejoice and trust in his goodness and what it is that he's planned for each of our lives. Sixth, look at verse 17. Jesus is before all things. This is similar to the point about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. But still, it's significant, I think, that Paul comes back to it. He he reiterates it here after, after saying what he's just said in verse 16. Because in saying that Jesus is before all things is to to even more emphasize the supremacy of Christ over all creation. He's the Lord over it all. Everything is subject to him. Everything must answer to him. Seventh, also verse 17. In Jesus, all things hold together. 
Perhaps if you were the one answering the question, who is Jesus? It might have very well been that you would have said that he, he's the creator of the world. But you know, there, there's something about this final statement that we're looking at here this morning. That has a day-by-day, indeed moment-by-moment impact on our lives. Because it's not simply that Jesus created the world long ago and has now stepped away for a bit and, and therefore has little interaction with any of it. No, you see, he's the one who at this very moment is still holding it all together. And, and in such a way that without him, it, it would all completely unravel into absolute chaos. Which means that the only reason that you, okay, you sitting there right now in that chair, the only reason that you continue to have one breath after another, even as you sit here this morning, is because he holds all things together. So brothers and sisters, let that knowledge impact your daily life and your, and your walk with the Lord, knowing that you are entirely dependent on the Lord at every moment of every day. And friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I pray that you will have been relieved of the horrible burden of thinking that your life depends on you. It doesn't. You are not your own. You have a creator. And your creator is upholding your life at this very moment. Now, what foolishness it would be to continue to ignore him and reject him. His name is Jesus. That is your creator. He is God made visible. Indeed, it's, it's almost hard to fathom. But he's the very one who just a mere 30 years before these verses were written. This was written in about 60 A.D. Jesus died in about 33 A.D. So just a mere 30 years or so before these verses were written, this very same one being talked about here was, was, was walking dusty roads in Palestine. He had personal friends who, who knew him. Uh, he was eating and drinking with his disciples. And then ultimately he was being tortured and nailed to a cross. And yet this is written about him. Image of the invisible God. Firstborn of all creation, by, through, and for whom all things exist. The one who's before all things and who holds all things together. It's the same Jesus. And indeed, what's most remarkable is that he sacrificed his life to die for your sins so that you could be with him forever. So he didn't create this world for you. He created it for himself. But you see, in his remarkable grace, he offers you and anyone who put their faith in him. The greatest joy and pleasure there is, which is eternal life with your creator. You know, I'm told that scientists are constantly on the search for the, uh, quote, holy grail of science, the, the theory of everything. It's that, that simple set of laws that explains every complex detail of our universe. Well, to be sure, Colossians isn't a scientific textbook. But here, if you will, is the theory of everything. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who unlocks the meaning and purpose of life and the universe. And the beauty of it, though, is that that theory that the world is, is so looking for isn't impersonal. It's not found in some, some abstract set of physics or laws. No. In the words of one commentator, this theory of everything has a heart. It has a face. It has a purpose. 
And it doesn't require a genius with three PhDs to know this theory. It only requires a humble man or woman of faith who's willing to take the living God at his word. And so whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, listen, don't believe the theories that just seem to be assumed as common knowledge in fact today. The false theories that try to tell you that the world has no purpose and no meaning. That, quote, we live in a mathematical universe captive to the meaningless dance of atoms and the chance alignment of DNA. Or the lies that tell you that survival belongs to the fittest in a non-moral, a-spiritual struggle which sanctions cruelty when necessary and ignores the weak. I mean, no wonder why so many people are so fearful and so anxious and so hopeless and are simply given over to living for themselves and just trying to live it up as much as possible until they die. That's why, listen, I, I think this sermon today, and more specifically this, this passage here today, this is perhaps the most practical sermon I could ever preach. Uh, even though I, I don't have three application points here at the end for you, I don't have five steps for you about how to, how to do this or how to do that in your life. And yet this is the most relevant and practical message I think you could have. Because it changes your whole world. You can't believe these verses and not have your whole view of life and creation and existence be absolutely transformed. And the same goes for your own life. If you truly believe what's said about Jesus here, if you get to, to, the, to, to the answer to that question of who is Jesus, if you get your answer from verses like this, and if you believe it, you will be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. In other words, the, the more you gaze upon the glory of Jesus as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and the more you study his glory and the, the, the more you meditate on his glory and the, the, the more you behold his preeminence in creation, right, the more your very life will be transformed. So brothers and sisters, as you, as you battle against sin and temptation in your life, as you push back against that ungodly anger that wells up within you, as you resist the anxiety that threatens to overwhelm you, and as you fight against the, the hopelessness and the despair that threatens to undo you, and as you refuse the selfishness that's constantly whispering to you and, and tempting to you, this is how you do all of that. This is your how-to. Your how-to is to behold the glory and supremacy of Jesus. The very reason he's a sufficient Savior is because he is the Supreme Lord. So see who he is. Know with all of your heart and your mind the answer to the question, who is Jesus? See it. Behold it here. Behold his glory. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. All things have been created by him. All things have been created through him. All things have been created for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together.
Friends, behold that glory. Because when you get a hold of Christ, that will utterly transform you forever. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning uh, for your glory. Uh, Lord, our our words cannot uh, by any means capture the glory of who you are or do justice to the praise that you deserve. Uh, But with all that we are and the frailty of of who we are, we we offer you our praise. Uh, We praise you that you are the glorious God. Uh, Would you open our eyes more and more to see your glory? And as we see it, would you continue to transform us? Would you transform us from one degree of glory to another? That we would image you, that we would honor you, and that we would please you with our lives. And we do pray this for your glory. Amen.